us down to the last comic shop in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, hey! It is now time for more of the last comic shop! That's right. We are opening the shop up to newbies to help them find their way under this giant comic book tent. And keeping it open later for the old folks who are afraid of the newbies and just want to read their Bronze Age books. <laughs> That's true. That's God. not Chad. That isn't Chad. That's I could friend. never be Chad. That's our good friend Mikey Wood. He's on today's show as well as other wonderful guests that we'll get to in just a second. I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson, and I'm joined as always by my regular co-host, Jay Scott. Chad does have the week off, but we are joined by the wonderful Mikey Wood, who is pinch hitting for Chad this week. Yes, Mikey. Uh, how you been? You reading anything good? Like, what's the most recent comic book you read, buddy? Honestly, the most recent comic book I read is the one we're going to talk about tonight. Like, uh, uh-huh. we should welcome our new guest because uh, I was recently diagnosed as diabetic, and his character's name is Lancet, and it's really funny to me. <laughs> the irony is really hilarious. To me. Yeah, let's introduce our, our guests for this week. As you know, on The Last Comic Shop, all this month, we are bringing on comic book creators, other than Mikey Wood, to talk about their wonderful projects and share a read pile with us. And on this week's show, we've got the wonderful Ben Morris. Yay! How are you doing, Ben? Very well. Thanks for stopping by at The Last Comic Shop. Absolutely. And, uh, Thanks for having me. I mean, I found your work originally, the the book that Mikey was talking about, uh, Captain Lancet, is the main character. It's certainly the main character, I'd say. Of We Are Scarlet Twilight. That was where I found your wonderful work, both writing and doing wonderful, wonderful art. I mean, gosh, your art is beautiful. Mm. Like, I, (laughs) I, 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 I... I'm going to gush. I'm sorry. I'm going to gush. Like, I yeah. saw it, and I was just like, no. <laughs> wow. And I was like, I got to I gotta sign up for this. I got to I gotta get this Kickstarter. So I did. Got the first two issues. Signed up for mm-hmm. issue three. Since then, checking out your work on August, which is wonderful. And sincerely, sir, I got to ask, like, how did you get involved with comics? Have you been a lifelong comic book fan? Like uh... Pretty close to lifelong fan. Um, so my my first comic was a JLA issue, uh, George Perez had drawn. Oh, it's got to be more than that. Maybe 193, something like that. It was the JLA running into Red Tornado on the moon somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I think I got that when I was four or five. I also got a Marvel Hardy's 3D viewer thing about the same time. I think it was... 83 or something like that. And then uh, the biggest thing was watching the ABC uh, Sunday night movie when they'd have Superman or Superman 2 on. And that was just like, I was hooked. Aside from a brief dalliance between maybe ages, you know, four, five, six through uh, nine or so with baseball, comics were always on my mind. Once uh, Batman the movie trailer showed in 89, I was like, whoa. This is crazy. I've got to get back into comics. And from that point on, I've never, never strayed. I mean, I was always an artist. I always wanted to draw. So uh, I'd say from 89 on, I was like, well, I'm going to be a comics artist. I've always been drawing comics, kind of experimenting with methods to do it, kind of finding out drawing some books, writing some books. Nothing really gelled for me until a few years ago, and I really felt like I was firing on all cylinders. And uh, those finally took shape. 
uh, I'd say in the last 10 years with uh, August, Purgatory Underground, and uh, also Scarlet Twilight, which you mentioned uh, in the last couple of years. You were mentioning that you graphic designing, video editing, animation. What was that thing that got you back or, or got you putting out uh, Scarlet Twilight or, or, you know, back to comics, essentially returning to your, mm-hmm. I guess, youth and early love? Well, I, it's kind of weird because I've always been drawing comics. I had a job at an illustration studio from 2002 until I think 2004 or five when that place folded. And then ever since then, uh, I have a business partner that was at that studio as well. And we just kind of went into business for ourselves. We've been doing that ever since. And we've, I, I've sent pitches in that got rejected. Um, I've done a few issues of, of books um, just in the art thing. I was doing okay, but I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't quite ready. You know, the great thing about that is I've had a lot of mentors in the illustration field who have taught me great techniques that I've you know, always been bringing back to comics. I would say that in the last five, ten years, I've gotten fast enough. I can keep doing things. I can keep putting things out there. I can keep building up momentum. I would say August, I've been developing probably for the last ten years. I have drafts that go back to 2011. Wow. There's things in it that I think, you know, as the political landscape in this country has gotten a little more heated, things that had been in the story for, you know, five, six, seven years at that point, I was like, this is a little too on the nose now. People are going to think it means this. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it had been, it took a long time to develop. I think it even took a longer time because one thing that gets really hard, especially when you're doing it on your own, you develop so much lore and so much, uh, you know, these characters live in your head. You know them really well and you know the plot really well, even as it shifts. There are times where it's hard to go back and read a draft and say, oh, people who are just reading this aren't going to know this happened to this guy if I don't tell them. Right. It's in my head. I know this happened to him a year ago, but I, I need to really show it. And I showed it in previous drafts, but I hadn't really demonstrated it in this draft. So it was a little bit hard to self-edit in that sense. And that's one reason it took this long. But your question with Scarlet Twilight, um, that was an idea that really came to my head pretty quickly. Obviously, I love Golden Age comic art. I think you know everybody does. There's something about those pulpy early Batman comics, um, Superman comics, that just really grab you. Uh, there's an energy to them, even though they're you know tiny panels, they're not that dynamic. But there's something about those that really do kind of grab you by the lapels and get your attention. So there's something there I always wanted to make work of. I had an idea for kind of a cyberpunk vampire story in my head for years that I was like, that's not that good. But it was just kind of orbiting around. And um, I've been looking at some of the Chip Kid books that he's done with Alex Ross, where he really takes some artwork and shows it in a different way. For instance, in Batmanga, one of his books he's done, he shows things from a different era. He takes really nice photographs of them, designs them in a nice way. And it's a really good, uh, I'd say, visual reexamination of those things. Those really got me thinking, like I could take some of the 30s panel things they do, the way they deal with text, the way they deal with captions. And I took my cyberpunk vampire story and said, this wasn't enough for a story on its own. But if I take these other visual things and do some contrast with that, I think that's enough to make a miniseries. That's enough to be valuable. I had that idea and I want to say maybe late 2020, early 2021, and okay. was more or less off to the races once I kind of had the idea to gel those things. So yeah. uh, I've always been doing stuff, but it's kind of up to uh, publishing takes a while, has its own quirks. Um, the ideas as well take their own time to be like you get an idea in your head for years and years. Finally, it becomes like, yes, this is actionable. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. So that is my answer to that. Well, there you go. 
and and I will say that uh, I, I again going back to Scarlet Twilight. I, I mean, I, I just like the idea of you've got this Art Deco style throughout all of it. And and to your point, like Golden Age stuff, it is really wonderful. And and really yeah. for me, the your your book kind of harkens a little bit more towards. I don't know, some of the things I would see in, in, in comic strips at that time, stuff like the Alex Raymond, or and I'm not going to say Hal Foster because that's more some of the ways that you do the backgrounds and the bleeding of the, the, the foreground. It just, it looks wonderful and everything looks very nice. romantic. But I, I really quickly wanted to, to ask you, oftentimes when I talk to comic book artists, I, I, I say to them not only like, hey, what were the first comic books that you read, but sometimes uh, they have their own I don't want to say heroes among other comic book artists or folks that they gravitated towards as they were reading comic books and saying, I like that style. I like that style. Not to say that they, they cherry pick, but they, they definitely do make mental notes of like the way that people do composition and layout and the structure of their stories. What are, what are your kind of comic book artist heroes in some ways? Well, I, I mean, I think you ask any artist, you're going to say, Oh gosh, there's too many to, to mention. Uh, my biggest ones, Steve Rude. Okay. And, um, yeah, I see that. Um, I see that for sure. Garcia Lopez, who I think we'll talk about a little bit later, is I think everybody's. I mean, he is like the standard, the blueprint. You cannot get a more pure comic book com- artist anywhere. But the one, if I had to pick one, it would have to be Al Williamson, who had done a lot of Flash Gordon, a lot of Star Wars strips, yes, uh, and the Star Wars comic adaptations of the movies. As I was still in the comics after seeing, after being ten and seeing Batman the movie, you know, I always loved it. I loved Image. I loved the X Men. Uh, loved Batman, Superman. But when I saw, I think there was a period where Dark Horse really started putting out and pushing the Star Wars comics they had. They reissued the movie adaptations, and they had Art Adams covers that were beautiful, and they were running on the back of other comics. I saw those. I was like, that's really cool. I kind of want to. I was not a big Star Wars fan as a kid. That kind of got me back into it. I watched the movies one weekend when they were on the Sci-Fi Channel hosted by Billy Dee Williams. And uh, I suddenly, I was, I mean, I'm still, I'm a Star Wars guy. So I started getting more of the comics. I got Dark Empire by Cam Kennedy. The adaptations of the Timothy Zahn novels were great. But the thing that really got me was Al Williamson. He has these elegant figures. And I think that one of the things that really impressed me was his draftsmanship, his use of shadows, which was really strong. But so unlike uh, Sin City, which is at the time what I think of as the only other really strong use of contrast and shadows, I think what Williamson did normally was as strong as that, but he had a different vibe entirely. And I think something was more restrained, and to me it seemed more powerful. And on top of that, you know, you're coming out of the image era. You're seeing like these life, and I love Rob Liefeld and his work, but... (laughs) Too bad we don't have Chad on this show. That's his favorite. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm a giant Liefeld fan, giant Jim Lee fan. But you know, I was finding Al Williamson at a time where we were kind of coming down off the image style. And uh, I looked at Al Williamson's stuff and I thought, this is really strong. Uh, just such a great foundation. Uh, the sense of adventure, the sense of heroism. And I, I loved that. I really gravitate to it and still do. Um, from there, I kind of got into Mike Schultz's art from Cadillac and Dinosaurs. Yes! And yes. uh, Rosetta, all that stuff. But Williamson is the one that really was like, that is my, that's my hero. Right. Mm. He is my hero. Because again, I, as I was mentioning before with the Alex Raymond, like 
he's the continuation of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. where back in the day, a lot of those comic book artists, they, they were doing comic book art, but they really genuinely wanted to be illustrators. They wanted to be yeah. illustrators in like novels and things. And so that was what they were striving for. But they unfortunately, there was only so many of those. So they did comics instead. And so they brought that sense of what you would do with classic illustrations mm -hmm. for a novel to the comic book page. He's part of that generation, him, Wally Wood, a couple other folks that, that came kind of out of that that EC mm -hmm. Comics late fifties group. Yeah, Wrightson, Kurtzman, yeah. all these guys. Yeah. yeah. And there they had that that still that mindset. And so and I agree. I, I remember, I think it was in the early nineties when Al Williams had put out like a three issue Flash Gordon arc. Oh, I have that. Uh, it's at Marvel. And it was it. <laughs> like it was like really like at the at the height of like you know, people without feet. You got this to yeah. counterbalance that. And that was what I gravitated towards. So you're speaking my language. I think, again, this is why I mm -hmm. fell in love with Scarlet Twilight, to be honest. But let, let's real quickly talk about your two projects. If you could give uh, a 10 cent synopsis, We Are Scarlet Twilight. We Are Scarlet Scarlet Twilight is a story of a two-fisted 30s crime buster who has a lot of secrets. He gets it a little bit over his head. He causes some very major problems. And by the end of the first issue, you see what those are. And he spends the rest of the story trying to unravel those problems. And at the same time, we learn a lot more about him, his secrets, and his motivations. Mm -hmm. So um, it is essentially a look back at 30s comics, 30s characters, you know, 1930s sense of patriotism. It's not deconstructionist, but it is sort of postmodern in the sense that we're looking at it through modern eyes. So. In a heroic way, I hope. That's the kind of stuff I dig. Because, again, you can go back sometimes and read Golden Age stuff. But, like, uh, there's some yeah. cringe-worthy parts of that. So anytime when you can take the aesthetic of 1930s, 1940s, but then include modern sensibilities, it's going to be hitting it mm -hmm. out of the park for me every single yeah, time. Yeah. Then you don't, when you don't have to go nine panels of really stilted dialogue yeah <laughs> page after page i mean sometimes and that's one that actually it's kind of weird the the fun thing for me is sometimes it's fun to do that make it stilted mm -hmm. and then like yeah. a giant splash panel of someone crashing through a wall just for contrast like that was a good tool and that's one of the things that really drew me to do it was like you know it's cool to like do what they do for a little bit because there are cool things about it but it's slow and it's small and it's not dynamic and then you yeah. just go from like you know, 1930s Flash Gordon serial with Buster Krabby to Zack Snyder slow motion. That was fun. And I thought that was one of the things that made me like decide, yeah, I think there's enough meat on this bone to make a comic out of it. There's a lot to play with there, and that's what made it cool to do. There's least. a there's a charm to it. There's the, there's this charm to that sort of like golden agey kind of where they where they described everything in in, in narration bubbles where it's you know superman yeah. reaches for the robot's face even though they show that the, the storytelling was still very uh pulpy and very you know and then that's you get that vibe really well to the point where there's there's moments where it, it feels like it's got that sort of intentional i don't want to say silliness because it sounds disrespectful but you know what i mean like like yeah. uh and then and then there's this twist that's like it's super cool man but yeah. the uh you know actually you mentioned like the stilted you know like they'd have these captions that's one of the things i thought was actually really fun when i got into it was like i'd have a long sort of exposition scene or something was moving the plot along but it wasn't necessarily exciting in the you know like i want to see superheroes run across rooftop sense and i could use those captions just like captain lance had figured this out and then he went here like oh cool i don't have to do all that yeah that's fun 
and no one wants to read it anyway. I mean, yeah. you just want to get to the cool stuff. So there's a lot of tools. I think I've learned from looking, you know, at those old comics. I'm like, I'm going to keep that. I'm just going to like, you don't need to do a lot of like slow dialogue. You can just say, having figured this out, he drove across town and now he's up here doing something that you, you know, much rather see. That was a fun thing. But also I think in terms of just offering value to readers, I think that was really cool. I mean, like, yeah, wow, we could just do that. And you look back at how, you know, you read about these comics being developed in the 30s. They were just like, make something cool happen on every page. Or these kids are just going to toss it out like they were desperate. And I'm like, it's kind of good to be in touch with that because you do need to keep people hooked. You need to, do need to offer a lot of value. There's so many options for entertainment now that we're kind of in the same spot. So I think I've, I've been lucky. I feel very lucky to have learned all this from really going through those old comics with fine tooth comb and seeing what works, what I can bring back. Um, Cause there's a lot of good tools there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it, there's substantial reads too, which is nice because so many people, uh, maybe not so much anymore, but for a while there, people were kind of like writing for the trades. So they yeah. would either the, the issue would be done incredibly quickly. Like you're, you're yeah. like before you even realize it, or it's the just long dragged out sort of, sort yeah. of thing. That's something I would rather something be wordy and actually involve me for a while than a comic that you, you know, spend three ninety nine on that takes three minutes to read because it's all splash pages and, and, and fights. Yeah. So that's another thing that's really cool. That so. I hope so. You know, that's, yeah. that's something like I'm not a big comics name. I'm nobody knows me. So every issue I do, I mean, I know every, there's gotta be, man, this might be somebody's first issue and I'm not terribly concerned with continuity stuff in the sense that like, I mean, everything should make sense, but I mean, I started reading X-Men. I had no idea what was going on. And then you know, <laughs> same <laughs> Well, you got to go I back. still it's have just, no idea what's going yeah, on half yeah. the time. Well, There's now, people who've read it for 30 years and they don't know what's going on. Yeah, so, so yeah. You, you, you knew it had to make sense at the time, but you were coming in at your point in the story. And that was fine with me. I liked that. I was helping my aunt clear her uh, uh, backyard, for, and I lived there for a week when I was like 13 or something. And she was reading my issue of X-Men. It was one of the... I, I think like in 1992, it was drawn by John Reader Jr. and inked by Dan Green. I don't know who wrote it. It's probably in Fabian Nassisa. But um, she was like, how do you make sense of this? And I'm like, well, how do you make sense of your soap operas? Like, yeah. you watch the first one, you know, you got into it. So I, I, I don't get too hung up on everything's got to be explained in every issue. But I also need to make sure like every issue's got to have like a ton of cool stuff. It has got to be value. You've got to want to read the next one. If you're coming in later, you've got to want to read the previous ones. So that's that's always on my mind when I'm like pacing these out, which is generally how I start writing is I'll take, okay the 22 pages or whatever I'm doing, five pages of this, two pages of that, three pages of this. Wait, that's not that interesting. One page of that, five pages of this. And and I'm really always cognizant of that because I want to make sure this was a good buy. This was a good issue. I I want everybody to think that whether it's on Kickstarter in the shops. Very cool. You'll be you'll be a name at some like somebody will see this and grab it. I mean, like like and and, and grab you up and you'll be signing contracts and I like. It's, <laughs> I so. uh, oh, I, I don't want to be your first fanboy, but it's <laughs> miles better than some of the things that are out there right now. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you're doing things that are that are super interesting. I go back to uh, Scarlet Twilight and again the the dichotomy between like every single time you put in one of these like golden age tropes like. Mm-hmm. The laser gun with the big giant uh, oh, the rings. hoops, and yet it's just the prop. Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to give too much away, but like every single time you add one of those tropes, you 
flip it just a little bit where you're like, here's the chauffeur character. Remember the chauffeur characters in, in Golden Age books? Ah, we're turning that on its head. Remember mm-hmm. the uh, the reporter gal? We're turning that on its head. So, like, even oh, Captain God. Lance, <laughs> I'm not going to give too much away, but you turn yeah. that on its head. So what you're doing is not only adding value, but you're adding something new to the soup, your own spice. I hope I hope so. It makes it worth reading. It's not just like a retread of a retread of a retread. It's Mm -hmm. something different. That's the idea, I think. Because I love that stuff. I don't want to, like, take it down. I mean, I'm into it. I like it. And I kind of want it to be a a reaffirmation of it in some sense. While, you know, you, like, look at some of the stuff. Well, this is a little bit silly. But, you know, why would it be silly? And uh, I didn't think of this when I first started writing Scarlet Twilight. When I wrote August, I knew who he was. He was kind of George Harrison meets Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Luke Skywalker. And it was very easy for me to imagine how he'd react to something, what he'd say, how much he'd say. Captain Lance was a little tougher because he's kind of an archetype. Uh, the thing that came into my head, really, as I started writing it, was Adam West. Uh, okay, yeah. Because that, that kind of covered the same ground, in a sense, as, um, as Scarlet Twilight does. It's, it was silly, but they also kind of knew what they were doing. Kids will see it this way. Adults will see it this way. They were kind of sending out two different signals, and that that became very valuable to me as I, you know, got into the character and wrote more of it. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen. There was the last season or so of Super Friends, or the uh, Galactic Guardians season. Yeah. Is that yes, the best season because they took the the concept of the Super Friends and they just kind of tweaked it a little bit so that there was enough serious interjected there that it was just like okay. This doesn't seem like just running around. Yeah. It's played for kids, but adults probably could watch it too and, and enjoy it. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a little bit of gravitas or seriousness yeah, to it. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. yeah. There so, was one episode that was uh, written by Alan Burnett, I think, mm-hmm. that was intended to be a backdoor pilot to a Batman series. Yes. It was basically fear, just Batman, Batman versus yeah. Scarecrow. Wonder Woman showed up for reasons that are unclear to me, but she was there. Yeah. And they kind of went back and told you, you know, because I, I, as a kid, I think I always knew how Batman, you know, happened, but I don't think they'd ever shown in cartoons or in the shows. So they, you know, they actually explained it in this episode. And there's a point where Alfred and Robin, and I think Wonder Woman are in the kitchen of Wayne Manor because Batman's acting weird. And they're saying like, what's up with him? Why is he so scared of Prime Alley? And unbeknownst to them, Batman has walked in the room and it's still voiced by Adam West, but you know, it still has the baggage in a good way of the Adam West Batman. And uh, he's behind them all as he hears them talking about him. He's like, I'll tell you. And it's Adam West Batman, but he's being serious. And yeah. as all this gravity, I'm like, that really just hit me like a lightning bolt. I think I saw that you know, 20 years ago. But like that had like a real force to it where it's you're taking Adam West. But he's like, yeah, I've been kind of silly. But hey, I've got tons of dignity. And I thought that was cool. And that's kind of what got me to Scarlet Twilight. What made me crack that character. It's self-aware silliness. It's not undignified, but it's a little bit light and giving it some some real weight. Because I wanted to have weight and, yeah. you know, really just get to you. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break. We're going to be back with more uh, Ben Morris, and he's going to talk about his other series, August, right after this commercial break. So stay tuned for more of The Last Comic Shop right after this. Hey, this is Ken M. Padawan J. Coach Duffy. From the Ocho Duro Parley Hour podcast. 
Every week, the ODPH is talking sports, movies, TV, comics, and more. It's always a parlay of topics on each episode. You can find the ODPH on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and wherever you find great podcasts, such as the one you're listening to right now. Don't forget to check out OchoDuroParleyHour.com, where you can find the links to all of the ODPH social media accounts, links to the bands whose music you hear each week on the show, hashtag 607 podcast info, and Parlay Points, our companion block section of the show. Thanks for listening to the ODPH. Now get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Okay, and we're back. And now we're going to talk about your other book a little bit, Ben, which is August. And I'm really interested in not just what it's all about, but the process, because you're really very much a one-man band. So you, you're doing the writing, you're doing the scripting, you're doing the art, you're doing the colors. How does that all come together? I mean, do you sit down and storyboard it? Do you write everything out and then draw? How do you get to the point where you're ready to put the book out? Uh, my process generally is I break down issue by issue. I, I have an idea of the beginning, the end, the middle, you know, in a really broad strokes. In August's case, when my publisher finally said, hey, we'd like to do this, these seven issues would be cool. And initially it was 12 issues. So I took my 12 issues, condensed it down to seven issues, got back in touch with them about a month later, and they said, you know, we said seven, but we actually meant kind of four. So then I <laughs> took everything and put it down to four. And, I, you know, that's, again, a, a real blessing because I think the type of story August is, four is the right roller coaster ride. There are things I missed that were lost in the longer story, but I also think this was the right momentum. This was the right, you know, length. Um, but once it was, you know, four issues, I said, okay, I got this story. Let's figure out what works in four issues. So I take the key events. I take when they want to, when I want them to happen. I knew some events. Uh, August four ends is almost an issue long fight. I knew that I wanted that to happen. So I was like, all right, everything else is three issues. This is the fourth issue. And uh, generally from there, I write dialogue. And I usually do that in InDesign, um, almost like I'm lettering it. So I'll break down my panels. I'll write dialogue. And then from there, I'll go in and, and do my art you know, sketches. Um, so there's a lot of writing and, and essentially a lot of lettering before I get to the art stage. It's almost a readable comic at that point. Issue, you know, Issues, then scenes page counts, and then dialogue within those scenes. Now, uh, when you're doing the art, is it all electronic? Are you sketching yeah. into a tablet with uh, like a Wacom no, no, or something? It's all, not only is it all electronic, but uh, uh, I'm all digital. And because that's, as a commercial artist, you know, since 2002, that's what I'm used to. And what I started out doing was a lot of technical art. So if you bought a propane heater or a, uh, a sink from, you know, one of the big sink companies, I probably do the manual to that. That's kind of how I got started. So not only do I draw uh, digitally, I draw with a mouse. I mean, I draw with a hand, you know, when I'm doing my thumbnails or sketches, or if I do like, I want to have like an original piece of original, original art, I'll do that uh, by hand with ink and, you know, everything. But uh, everything's digital and everything is done uh, with a mouse. Couldn't you, nobody would ever know looking at it. I can tell you that that's all, that's, I, I have a hard time with drawing on a tablet yet. I'm not used to it. I, I'm used to pencil and paper and it just doesn't feel right digitally. Got, so I, I envy that. We got started with tablets. Um, when I worked at that illustration studio, I'd mentioned we had a guy that he had actually introduced me to the drawing program I use, but he would like sit there with a the tablet and he had to put a piece of paper over it because the tablets were so jumpy. Yeah. 
And, uh, and, you know, it just was too much. It didn't work out for me. So anyways, 10 cent synopsis, August. If you ever want to see some of this lore, just go out to Ben's uh, Twitter page because he's got Captain August trading cards that look like they're the trading cards from like Marvel Series 2 and Marvel Series 3 from the early 90s. He's got box art for the Captain August action figure lines. And I just think that's great. It's the bees. I'm serious. It's the bees because it's that attention to detail and all of it looks legitimate like you talk about like you used to draw you know manuals for putting together sinks like you should have done box art for action <laughs> figures because it looks like what that, that mm-hmm. that's supposed to look like so yeah if you, if you want some of that lore just check that out because i think that's great but what happens in captain august? so the the central conceit of captain august is that it's a continuation of a non-existent show from the 80s so it's sort of like this was a show that was on between transformers and gi joe when you got home from school but it kind of never was when our story starts it's a guy who was kind of like robin the batman he was like the the sidekick but he was also sort of the central character and at some point this giant civil war that spanned the entire galaxy ended um with a pretty catastrophic event and he was mainly responsible for it. At first, he was hailed as a hero. As the Reconstruction era started, um, with both sides kind of trying to come back together and all that, he began to be viewed differently. It was like, wait, did that guy really need to do that? Um, and he, at the point our story starts, he's a bit of a pariah. He doesn't have a future in, his, in the army he served in his whole life. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He's hated by two-thirds of the galaxy. So even though he was, you know, seven months ago a hero, He's sort of the most hated man in the galaxy. He takes on a really dangerous mission to uh, go to a backwater planet that has reports of like maybe some ex-rebels that are holding up there and, you know, maybe causing some trouble on a small scale. And he finds out it's much bigger than that. Yeah, And the thing I love about your particular story is, uh, as you mentioned, you're a big fan of Star Wars. We all know that some of the best ideas from Star Wars come from Westerns. They're just basically space Westerns. That's all we're really doing here. And your your story does play out kind of like a post-American Civil War story, where oh, like August yeah. was uh, I, I, like Sherman, who then burnt Atlanta, you know, Dude, on his you, way to the... To you the, nailed the, it. The, <laughs> and so, like, simply put, he's now like, nope, we got no place for you. Like, you're a warrior. We're trying to promote peace. And so, like, he goes out west, and he meets a sheriff out there, and he puts on a poncho. And you mentioned, like, it was Steve McQueen. I I, I have James Coburn in that role, because he's got the chin. I don't know if Jay... Coburn, and Eastwood. I mean, that's... Oh, I was channeling outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a good one, too. Actually, somebody who was uh, looking at the script back in 2012... It's like, you should watch Outlaw Josie Wales and some of that stuff. And I, mm. dude, you nailed it. That's exactly yeah. what this is. And I yeah. think the, the sort of, I don't want to say political in the sense that we talk about politics now, but like even in the 90s X-Men cartoon, Rogue was saying stuff about Sherman and the attitudes about these figures change. So I thought like, well, it'd be interesting to do that like really quickly. Mm. It's not like he's being talked about 100 years later. He's in trouble right now. And I thought that's a really good way to condense that timeline of history to give a character some real issues to resolve. Uh, I actually have a sequel that takes place 50 or 60 years later where he's really old. 
called August Terminus Angels I pitched. Is that your Unforgiven? Is that where Clint Eastwood comes back? Uh, I mean, he's the old guy. He's the old hero. Um, I wouldn't say it's Unforgiven in the sense that he's like got regrets, exactly. But to give the 10-second pitch to that, 60 years after August Purgatory Underground, the galaxy is a sort of Walking Dead-esque wasteland everywhere. Cyborgs have kind of run around the galaxy, have exterminated just about everybody. Captain of a ship who's lost most of her crew lands on this deserted planet. She's hunted by these cyborgs that have taken over and they're just picking the bones clean of any life in the galaxy. And she runs into this old guy named August who might help her. Mm -hmm. It also has a vibe to it that I don't know if it was intentional, but it feels very sort of 70s side, like, like, Oh yeah. Logan's run kind of that it's got that vibe to it. Like it looks like because it's like the costume design. The costumes are like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Very it, Galactica. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You managed to do nostalgia without it being uh, ham You know what? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Some people do like if you watch a a show that takes place in the eighties, everything is day glow and everything like that. When the eighties was mostly like you know, brown wooden wood grain paneling in yeah. your living room. You know, not everybody's home looked like a Toys R Us. You know, but so so you do this really great sort of thing where things it, it feels comfortable. Yeah, and 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 the way you do the flashbacks in that sort of Saturday morning cartoon kind of style. Those were fun to do. So that's that's a blast too. That's a really great way of showing the difference. I just want to get that like distance. You know, like he yeah. was this guy. He was Robin. You know, and then he's. It shows like everything gets a little bit more haggard at the end, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, which is really awesome. And it immediately taps in to something that's very popular now, which is to take Saturday morning cartoon characters and make them all gritty. Like, oh, yes, look at this. We're going to take G.I. Joe and really make them kill people. Oh, do you guys remember G.I. Joe Extreme from like the mid-90s? Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, I do, but I don't. (laughs) That whole era of the 90s is just a... But you do that. You you tap into that notion that like a lot of us, you know, that grew up with those Saturday morning cartoons, maybe we don't want a blood and gore fest, but we do want those characters to age because we have. We want some more sophisticated stories from our heroes and so you're playing in those lanes that's really smart from a marketing perspective there's there's a little vibe in there about i i don't know i I mean maybe i'm stretching but but um it's like everybody thinks about how the atomic bombs over hiroshima and nagasaki ended world war ii but they don't think about what happened to the guy who dropped it you know dude you are reading my mind okay yeah (laughs) uh one of the big things that started with this was uh in, I think, fifth grade, I had to call my grandfather, who had served in World War II, and ask him about World War II and the bomb. And I grew up in the 80s. I always, you know, like, we were horrified about the bomb. We were mm-hmm. always thought that's, like, we watched the day after, or we were scared of it. And uh, and he's like, well, I would have had to go over to Japan, and it would have been a bloodbath. It would have been horrible. It was, like, a terrible fight. So many people had died. So when that happened, it was like a stay of execution. We were, we were so happy. And... I wasn't alive then. I don't feel even right weighing in on that morally, uh, essentially. But like that was such a different viewpoint than everything I had been exposed to from television, from my teachers, even from my own parents. He was like, hey, that was like a godsend. We were so lucky. And you think of the guy that flew the Enola Gay. That's actually something my wife, when I was developing, it's like, that's who this guy is. He's that guy. And he actually ran into a lot of those troubles much later in his life. Not that he was ever 
you know, a pariah. But there were some back and forth where he was upset about how the bombing was portrayed in the Smithsonian exhibit in the 90s. There was clearly a difference of opinion in how people viewed it then and how people that were lucky enough to be alive much later in a different environment viewed it. And that's exactly what I wanted to condense and say, well, if that happened today, that guy would not get any rest for his whole life. He'd be hounded forever. Whereas the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, you know, (laughs) the the actual, you, you know, because it is a horrible thing that at the time stopped a horrible thing you know yeah. and it's the monster fighting a monster kind of vibe but yeah but that's exactly i done tons of research about that pilot that flew the old gay um specifically once i figured out what this was going to be that was exactly what i went to you nailed it yeah, like he didn't exactly it's not like he was like gung-ho and had such a blast doing it a blast yeah. that's a terrible pun that's not uh, what i meant. it's not like he was a happy guy yeah. he had his yeah. own personal kind of but right. uh, and he was ordered to do it too. I mean, yeah. these are and orders, you know, right? we were afraid. It's, it's, in the, I mean, we yeah. were afraid of it in the eighties because we were the targets. It's different when you're the target. Yeah. You know, right. it's a different vibe. Well, it's I, interesting because uh, in Japan, people who have survived one of the bombs, they, they carry a special honor. I mean, obviously a lot of them are dying now just from age. Um, that doctor who survived both but of there's them. There's a guy, yes, yeah, who, yeah. who passed away a couple years ago. Did I you read ever hear his about that story? In Hiroshima, yeah. the bomb dropped. He survived. He got on a train and went to Nagasaki, and the bomb dropped there, and he survived that. And he went on to be a doctor, and he treated people with you with know, radiation, radiation poisoning, and and yeah, and that's an amazing. Story. When he passed of, of old age, <laughs> well, I mean, he was. I mean, the the New York Times wrote an obituary. There were, you know, he was. It was world press coverage of of this man's passing. And he lived a very long time. Yeah, he survived two yeah. atomic bombs and lived until his nineties, I think. Cool. All yeah. right. Well, we're going to take another commercial break, and we'll be right back with more of The Last Comic Shop. We're going to be wrapping up with some recommendations. So stay tuned for more talk with Ben right after these messages. Do your hobbies include comic books, movies, television, and or video games? Are you always behind with the latest news in the world of nerd? Well, look no further than the Oblivion Bar, a nerd culture podcast. Oh, great Scott! Hosted by Chris Hacker and Aaron Knowles. The Oblivion Bar offers a weekly review of all the latest breaking news, in-depth discussions far beyond whether Han shot first, and newsletter section, where you, the listener, send in your questions to be answered live on the show. New episodes every Monday, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcasts. I'm just so, so freaking excited! You can also find us on Twitter, at Oblivion Bar Pod. Come join us at the Oblivion Bar Podcast. Hope to see you there. Looking for a podcast all about nerddom? Want a podcast with an emphasis on representation? The Nerd Alternative is the podcast for you. Join me, Ram. Me, Hassan. And me, Levi. Three black British nerds tackling the pop culture we love and sharing why we love them. The Nerd Alternative, a sweet melting pot of all things nerdy. Alright, we're back with more of The Last Comic Shop. It is now time for recommendations. Yes, that time of every single show where we give you other comic books to check out in addition to picking up August that should be at your comic book dealers today by the wonderful Ben Morris. And we're going to go ahead and start off with J.A.'s pick. So, J.A., what do you got for our readers uh, this week? Okay, so I was kind of channeled uh, Ben's August run, and it really got me thinking about some of the old Gold Key books 
that Valiant redid in the 90s. So Solar, Man of the Atom, Magnus Robot Fighter. And I used to love them. And I love that they integrated that into the Valiant universe at the time. So Dynamite now has the gold key licenses. And they've put out Magnus Robot Fighter new. The new Magnus Robot Fighter story. So if you don't know, Magnus Robot Fighter is uh, in the future, in the year 4001. And he fights robots that are becoming sentient and taking over from humans. And it's beautiful golden age craziness, but in a modern sense. So this is done by Fred Van Lenty uh, with art by Corey Smith and Roberto Castro. They've got a couple of trades out already. On this, uh, you can get it on Comixology Unlimited. If you have a Comixology Unlimited account, uh, you can get the first trade, which collects issues zero through four. And I love that they have an oh, issue zero, the geez. classic Valiant. Oh, my goodness. Issue zero takes place between issues two and issues three. I tell you, so it's one of those beautiful things. That's weird. In the trade, in the trade, is it in the right place? In the trade, it, it's first. So um, you have to actually, I know, they, they, I, ugh, come on. Okay. <laughs> it is really sad that Valiant was never able to get back Magnus, the robot fighter and Solar for their universe, just simply because I thought after they were incorporated into the universe in the nineties, they became such a crucial part that it was just like, ah, especially Solar. Yeah, especially, yeah, yeah. I was that Barry Windsor Solar series. Oh, that, that was amazing artwork. With that yeah. final panel that was all the, what was it, back covers yeah. or spreads or something put together? Spreads. Yeah. Two-page spreads that you had to put out and then all ten issues. Madness. But right. And I've tried to read some other Solars at other places. I think Dark Horse had Solar for a little while and then uh, uh, Dynamite had Solar. And, and none of them, they were okay. But none of them seemed to, to gel like Solar did when he was a, a part of a universe, and I, I don't know, Jim Shooter was on to something, the way that he incorporated at least mm. Solar into that. But mm. in any case, this isn't a Valiant talk. This is a talk about Ben's books. And, and Ben, what's your recommendation for this? My book? recommendation is right here. It is called Twilight. Uh, it is from the mid-'80s. It's written by Howard Shaken and drawn by the legendary Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And also, interestingly enough, it's colored by Steve O'Liff, before he became the sort of godfather of uh, digital coloring. And this is a great tie-in. It looks like this sort of early 90s Valiant comics. It's got the watercolor look. I think the palette is a little bit better than the Valiant comics were, because he's obviously a genius. But um, the great thing about this story to me was anything Garcia Lopez draws, you need to check out. I don't think there is a more pure comic book artist in existence uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Natural and Roy Hobbs talks about I'd like to be the best baseball player ever, when people see me walking down the street, they'll say that's the guy that was the best there ever was, the best there will ever be. I think uh, Garcia Lopez is that person. I don't think anyone will ever match him. Kirby, anybody, I'll put it up there. He is the he's the one. But uh, that's what got me to check it out. What got me to really just fall in love with the story is two things. I'm a giant fan of Dune. I love the giant scale science fiction sense that dune gives you you have a gigantic world you have um events that have galactic scale are tragic are horrible are epic twilight gives you that it also does it in a way and this is the second thing i like that is the 
they take all these Silver Age science heroes, sort of pre-superhero era of DC, and put them into this world. Most of them are really horrible, and if there's one fault in the series, it has a lot of sort of 1980s cynicism. There are no good characters in this story. Everyone is just absolutely awful, but it's incredibly interesting. The scale of the series is great. It goes as big as you could possibly imagine, while still giving you a sense there are larger elements at play that you never see, um, which I think is an amazing feat. The characters, while they are all cynical, you still have people to root for. You still have terrible villains. And um, every part of the universe is engaging. So I'd say that it's a it's a great recommend as far as the artwork, as far as the coloring, because it's amazing to see what Steve O'Lift did right before he went to digital. As far as Howard Chaikin's writing, it's amazing to see a take on old characters that is like, we're dusting off these characters, we're making them something new, something that works in a cohesive, epic story all together, and it's an exciting event. So it's a bit of a sort of Silver Age version of a crisis story, while being huge, while being intelligent, hard science fiction, uh, with, as I mentioned before, artwork by the greatest comic artist who I think ever has lived or will live. In in Twilight, there's a weapon that they use to fight robots called a Magnus. I didn't realize. I've read that story probably 20 times. And yet when the guy, I think Star Hawkins is the only one that uses it. Mm -hmm, Yeah. And I I feel like it's a callback to something that I don't quite understand, having not read comics in the 50s. They mention it like, oh, it's the Magnus. And here it is. You were probably expecting to see it. Um, it. It doesn't seem like it's its properties seem to fluctuate between the first two times he uses it. Yeah. Which I was a little unclear about. And there's a lot in that story. Um, it's almost like David Lynch's doing in that, like there are things that don't quite gel. It's wacky. Yeah. We'll talk but about you, that. Sometime. But it's still great. You just, <laughs> I, I almost like that. I still have to figure it out. It's just and, so and the cat's name changes from the first issue to the second, but we That's won't it. hold Howard. I did up, not uh, notice that. <laughs> yes. It go, it go, it's, it's with an I in the first issue and with two E's in the second and third. Whoa. We, yeah. We'll, I'll send Howard a message on that one. <laughs> All right. But yes, anyway, that's where that's where editors come in. That's why editors make the money they do. Very cool. All right, yeah. Mikey, you got to follow that. Well, my book actually sort of branches off of that in a little bit, and it is Iron Wolf Fires of the Revolution. Oh. Um, Iron Wolf Fires of the Revolution is actually a continuation of Chaikin's Iron Wolf stuff that he did for Weird Worlds back in the seventies, and uh, this is sort of his adventures in that Twilight world. So if you've never read this, it's kind of a branch between the two. So they mention Iron Wolf a little bit in the in Twilight and the um, like the wooden spaceships and things like that. That all spans from these weird weird world stuff like that. But um, it's Howard Chaikin and John Francis Moore, and with Mike Mignola doing the artwork, inked by P. Craig Russell, which is awesome. If you can imagine Mignola inked by P. Craig Russell, it's well, I mean. Fafford and the Gray Mouser was done that, you know. So yeah. it's it's, it's just beautiful. That is mine, and you should read it. It's fabulous. Cool. All right, so my recommendation this week, again, is in a, in a kind of a similar uh, sci-fi vein to some of the books we've already recommended, whether it was Twilight, whether it was Magnus Robot Fire, whether it was Ben's wonderful work on August. Mine's called Six from Sirius, and it's the first four-part series done uh, under Marvel's Epic line back in the early 80s. Uh, It was created by Doug Munch. There you go. The guy that did a lot of great stuff. I like his run on 
Moon Knight, and he did uh, Master of Kung Fu, which I love. The original Weird World, he did that, which is awesome. Uh, and it's drawn by Paul Galassi. And I, I got to admit that it was the, actually the art. Kind of similar to Ben and, and Scarlet Twilight. It was the art that brought me in first. Because some of that stuff that Paul Galassi is drawing uh, in this kind of epic space opera story where it kind of reminds me a lot of like Isaac Asimov's Foundation. I know that there's the Apple TV series out there now, but if you've ever read the novels of Foundation where, you know, you have like this political intrigue with people coming into other star systems and trying to, I don't know, institute revolution or something. Uh, that's what you kind of get. You got these agents from the Sirius Collective or whatever, and kind of like an, an A-team band of mercenaries. And they get they get there, and they find out that there's this war over this moon that's run by a religious organization, uh, which is mm. basically, in essence, heaven. And, and and there's weapons set up there, and, and there are secret weapons. But everything in this series works, and it's because it's kind of built from the ground up. You talk a lot about how the original Star Wars, you believed what Star Wars was because you saw the spaceships and you saw how they were almost riveted together. Paul DeLacy does that in his with his art in this series. You see the nuts, the bolts, the mm. computer banks. Everything seems lived in. Everything seems real. So it's it's hard not to get sucked into it. He's got these faxmen, which are kind of like, I don't know, they remind me of the Doctor Who Cybermen a lot, but still interesting design work on everything. And Doug's just a great storyteller. And so when he's partnered with somebody like Paul Galassi on, it just makes for magic. So there's not only that series, but you can also follow it up. There was a second four-part series that they did together so if you can find those in buck bins i've seen them in buck for sure you can probably get the whole series in buck bins find them buy them read them and we hope that you come back for more great recommendations next week again we're going to be wrapping up our wonderful month of september and talking with wonderful creators uh in the comic book field and you can do that by going out to our website www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com it's a terrific place where you can rate review and subscribe to our wonderful podcast which is hopefully getting people to notice wonderful work like the stuff that ben morris is doing come on people pick up comic books read them they're great and you got wonderful talent that's like really just busting their buns out there to give us good quality stories like Ben Morris. And so, Ben, real quickly, where can they find your stuff? You can follow me on Kickstarter. All my projects are there. The uh, next issue of Scarlet Twilight should, at the point that you're watching this, either be live or shortly going to be live. Um, August number two should be in shops September 21st. Third issue is going to be in October, I think, 19th. So check out your local comic book stores. It should be on the shelf. I hope it is. I've certainly sent emails out begging people to order it. So hopefully it's there when you go to look for it. If not, please ask your local comic store, hey, I've heard about this comic, August. Let's Can you get it for me? It's hard to take a chance on a new character, especially from one that's not DC or Marvel. So uh, ask your comic retailer um, or look for it in the shelves need a place to find those links and things like that make sure that you're also following us and again our website www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com where you can find 
our wonderful links to social media where you can also find what else, J.A.? Well, besides our links to all of our social media, you get a link to our merch store. We have T-shirts. We have coffee mugs. We have tote bags umbrellas maybe and uh coming soon hats i believe yes maybe we're still trying to get on top of that i i had to make our hats elsewhere but any case i will say this coming soon is our exclusive halloween edition of the last comic shop shirt so make sure that you pick up that with that great logo with the bats and the belfries and all that wonderful stuff in case you missed it last year um, what we also hope that you don't miss is all of those recommendations that we gave. Mikey, why don't you give us a quick recap? So we had from JA, we had Magnus Robot Fighter, the most recent series by Dynamite. And if you can find trades of the old stuff, it's, that's a blast too. He wears a red skirt. It's fun. Um, and then we've got uh, The Incredible Twilight by Howard Chaikin and uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who is magnificent. And anytime you see a picture of Batman or Superman, it's usually his uh, on any kind of material or anything like that. Um, uh, from me, it was uh, Iron Wolf, which is sort of kind of a, a bridge book be related to, to Twilight. And from Andrew, it was The Wonderful Six from Sirius. Yeah. So that's just fabulous. So make sure to go to your local comic book shop in the area. If you need to find that, go out to our website and you can get that link to the comic shop locator. Mm -hmm. And until next week, uh, I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by uh, Jay Scott, Mikey Wood, and of course, the wonderful Ben Morris. Thank you so much for Thank being you. on our show this week, Ben. Haven't we? Really did appreciate sure. all yeah. of the wonderful insights and just keep on doing that great stuff. <laughs> I hope someday when you hit it big, you remember at least That's that right. we, we had names. Right. Oh. <laughs> remember the little guy. people. <laughs> and right. remember to stay safe, stay cool. And it's not August, it's September. But still, go out and pick up August. It's a great book. <laughs> Andrew forgot to tell you about his level of cheese. He forgot, he forgot. <laughs> yeah. I hope you're not lactose intolerant. <laughs> The Last Comic Shop was a 2022 Black Angus production.